Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. My guest today is a Los Angeles-based TV writer and producer who has written for Tell Me a Story, Shadowhunters, Cold Case, and The Client List. She's also a best-selling novelist. Her debut thriller, Baby Doll, was an international bestseller and was published in 11 countries. An identical twin herself, she's here today to tell us about her struggles with infertility and ultimately her own experience with multiples. Holly Overton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my goodness, I'm so honored to pull you away for one minute from (laughs) your new full-time job. Let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? Well, I was born in Chicago, but I grew up in Texas. I'm an identical twin, and my identical twin sister and I were adopted when we were babies. And when our parents separated when we were four, we moved back to my mom's hometown in Texas, and I grew up there. But the bright lights in big city called to me, so I ended up moving to New York City for college. And then after that, I found myself in L.A. pursuing the acting dream and When I quickly realized I wasn't a good enough actor (laughs) to be a professional actress, I luckily found my calling as a writer, and I've been much happier and and less stressed doing that. You just glossed over so many interesting things (laughs) in one minute. Uh, Your twin sister, and you were adopted by the same family or different families? No, we were adopted by the same family when we were six days old. And my mom and dad had wanted kids for a long time and couldn't have them. And so they got us. They got, we were born at Christmas. And my mom was like, you are our Christmas miracles. And uh, yeah, we were That's very it. lucky. Have you met your birth parents? You know, we have not. Um, we located our birth mother and she kind of wasn't interested in having a relationship, which, you know, is, I think as someone who is adopted and someone who gives up a child for adoption, it kind of has to be a mutual endeavor, you know, and I think I felt very fortunate that I had a really great adoptive mother who, you know, I felt very loved and supported and nurtured. And um, I think that relationship is enough for me. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy how much you've accomplished. And uh, I, I don't know, in my mind, I'm wondering, you know, are they keeping tabs and, you know, obviously your mother and family that raised you, you know, they did something super right because you came out fantastic. But it's also curious to know if uh, your birth parents ever kind of look at all the things that you've accomplished as well. From what I know about, I don't. I think the answer to that is no. But um, but you know, I'm like I feel very lucky that you know adoptions available and that you know like I had such a good loving home to grow up in, and I think my mom that raised me, nurtured me and my sister to kind of dream big and, you know, go after your dreams. And we're from a small town in Texas, you know, where not a lot of people, you know, want to like leave or, or would even have the like idea that like, oh my God, you could become a TV writer or you could, you know, my sister's a TV producer that you could even do that. And my mom was like, sure, that seems realistic. (laughs) Go, let's do that. Why don't you go (laughs) for it? Um, And I think that's really fortunate because not every parent does that for their child. Yeah, I think a lot of parents don't even realize how much potential there is. And for that reason, and maybe others don't uh, guide their children to their full potential. Okay, so you glossed over acting. (laughs) Uh, For a reason. I mean, you know, it's so interesting because I feel like my acting, you know, I was like a kid and I was very shy. My sister and I both and my mom, there was a university in our town that had a theater department and we got involved in that and it really just transformed our lives. And made her really shy, you know, redheaded twins, like blossom. And I think kids need something like my husband was an athlete. Like I, you know, my sister and I did acting and I just desperately wanted to be an actor. And then I like got to the big leagues and I just realized like 
I mean, I studied in New York and then I came out here and I auditioned for every television show. I mean, I'm not even joking. I auditioned for Mad Men, House, Criminal Minds. I auditioned for, I think, eight times. And I booked one role and I got a couple callbacks for series regulars, but I just couldn't crack the code or whatever it was. And so it, you know, I didn't really decide to leave acting. Acting was sort of like, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting because I got my first writing job and I got momentum in writing and I was still kind of getting some acting auditions. And I just remember the moment that I like, it was like a children's sitcom and I went to the audition and by then I'd been doing it for trying to do it for so long. Like I was like a young mom now, not just like the teenager. And you were being cast as a young mom. Yes, I was being cast as a young mom, as opposed to like the college student or, you know what I mean? Like I transitioned from like a teenager, college student to like young mom. And, and I remember like being at this audition and running into some friends and thinking like, I didn't enjoy that. Like, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be writing. And that was the moment, like, I think I emailed my manager and I was like, I don't think I want to do this anymore, but I'm really grateful for the opportunities. And yeah. And then I just started focusing full time on writing and that's what I've been doing ever since. Do you feel like your brief stint in acting helps you with your writing? Acting has been so beneficial, whether it's just hearing dialogue and the way that I hear it or interacting with actors on set. I think all the confidence it gave me and knowing like character breakdowns and reading a million plays and all that early in my studies. So I think the training that I got was so wonderful. And I don't regret that time that I spent because I also think it just made me who I am. And it like, you know, it, it made me a better writer, but I would never go back to it. Like if someone was like, Hey, I want to put you in something. I'd be like, mm, I'm good. Thank you. Like I just have no interest in being on camera ever again. <laughs> oh, you write for TV, but you also, you're a novelist. How do you compare to the two different styles of writing? Well, I realized, I think through COVID that I'm an extroverted introvert. <laughs> oh. so I sort of need, like, I need the like stimulus and like the writer's room kind of offers that like camaraderie and team building and all of that. But then I also really like to like power down and be on my own and have my own thoughts. So I think it's a nice balance to get to do both, you know, in TV, it's never, I mean, I work for other people on other shows. I don't have my own show yet. So in TV, like I get to help someone else's vision come to life and in novels, it's my vision for better or worse, um, sometimes worse. I mean, I, I feel like my first book was easy and now I'm on my fourth book and I'm like, how do I do this again? Um, <laughs> for my third book, I was really into it. And I like, I like I was struggling and I Googled how to write a novel and I'd already written two at that point. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know how you're doing this, but I love them both. And I, I think, I don't know. I, I don't think I could choose if someone said you had to choose, but. Well, it's nice to have variety. Yeah. But it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I have four kids and I had two and I was feel like I was a pretty decent dad. But then we had the third and I was like, how do we do this again? I'm like, you know, that's my way of relating to you. How was it growing up as a twin? You know, I love being a twin. I thought like it was my sister and I were, our, she's my best friend. You know, we loved sharing things. There was like a moment in high school where we really got tired of being called Heather, Holly, whoever, you know, that's really <laughs> And uh, yeah, that wasn't great. Or like whoever you are or just the twins. And I remember like, we must've been like 14 or 15. And we're like, I'm, my sister was like, or one of us was like, I'm going to go live with my uncle in San Francisco. Like, I'm so tired of being your sister. That was never going to happen. And then of course we like went to college together and, and then like she moved out here and we lived together like for a long time before, you know, I got married and uh, it was great. I mean, I think like being a twin is like, especially an identical twin. It's just a relationship like no other. It is like 
fraught with like, you know, you're so close to someone that sometimes it's hard to have your own identity. But the best thing we ever did was we'd been so close and I moved out here and she stayed in New York after college and we lived apart for five years. And I think it was really helpful for the both of us to kind of have that time to like establish our own identities. Like if I go to a party and I'm not a twin, who will talk to me? You know, like <laughs> I'm so used to that of like it being a conversation starter and everybody wants to like, oh my God, you're twins. But it was nice when, when she decided to move out here and then we just picked up right where we left off and like we'd never been apart, but it was good for our emotional development. Did you ever do the trick where you pretend you're the other one? You know, we, so we never did it with boys, which was always the question like, oh, did you ever pretend me? <laughs> but we did it with like jobs when we were younger, like job interviews, like, you know, for like, I remember like we were like trying to move to New York and I was looking at schools in New York and my sister was like, oh, this restaurant's hiring on the river walk, but the interview's on Sunday and you're not back till Monday. I'm just going to go be you. And then <laughs> went to be me and I got the job. And then like, I think like the, it was like my going away party from that job. Like someone drunkenly mentioned, not me, but one of my friends at the restaurant drunkenly mentioned to my boss about it. And he thought it was hysterical. I came in for my last shift and he's like, Hey, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> so and we did, we might've done that a couple more times. I won't say when, but we definitely had a little bit of fun with it. <laughs> I always feel like if I was a twin, I would be trying to get my twin in trouble all the time and go do things as them. <laughs> and then let them find out about the hard way. I don't know. I, I was a sneakster, prankster, punk kind of guy. I think boys would probably have more fun with it. We were like, you know, we were just sort of like, oh my God, someone can tell me apart, you know, from my sister. And even now, like I've been out and, you know, my sister works in the industry and like, you know, you'll tell people you have a sister, but you don't always say I have a twin sister. And they'll be like, oh my God, Heather. And I was like, I'm not Heather. And they're like, shut up. <laughs> you look just like Heather. We'll stop pranking me. And it's like, and then one time I was out and someone was like, Holly, like Holly. And I had no idea who they were. And I was like, oh, you must know my twin sister. And they were like, no, I know you. <laughs> and I was uh, like, I just have a terrible memory and I don't remember you. I'm sorry. <laughs> just to be clear, you're actually Holly right now. We will never know. We'll never know. <laughs> now I'm wondering if you got busy and just sent Heather over to do the podcast no. for you. <laughs> so let me ask you this question. Where did you meet your husband? So we met in New York City doing a play. We were both aspiring actors and it was a terrible play. It was actually Shakespeare's flop. Do you know Shakespeare's flop? Are you familiar? No. Yeah, exactly. It's called King John. <laughs> and really? it's a terribly boring play. And I played, which will tell you how good this production was, a young boy named Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> and I had this terrible death scene. I mean, I tried to quit the play like twice and so did my husband. He had like three lines in it. Like it was just, um, but we met and hit it off and sort of did the like, you know, kind of dating off and on for probably two years. And then he moved to LA and I'm always careful to say I didn't move for him. Um, I'd already planned to come out here, but I was supposed to move before him. And then my mom was like, if you wait six months, I'll buy you a car. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm definitely waiting six months to move out. And my now husband moved out before in that six months. And so when I got out there, he showed me around LA and we started dating again. And 15 years later, here we are. <laughs> Oh, wow. How long did you date before you tied the knot? Nine years. So oh, That's a lot of courtship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like, I think at year seven or eight, I was like, okay, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm a very patient person. But at that point I was like, all right, are we doing this? Are we not? <laughs> 
Well, your interesting story gets even more interesting. Uh, we're going to take a little break. and When we come back, we will talk about your fertility journey and your recent entry to motherhood. We'll be right back. <laughs> hey, everyone. It's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart. Literally. Omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new Omega-3 Soft Gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We are talking to Holly Overton. Okay, so you met your hubby, you moved here, you dated for like three decades, and then you got married. And then... When did you start talking about kids? You know, it was a, probably about, I think, like, a few months after we got married, you know, it was like, hey, should we do this? Like, yeah, like, you know, we're not getting any younger. Let's, you know, give it a try. And we got pregnant pretty much right away. And I was, like, so surprised. I, like, didn't even realize. I thought I had food poisoning, which, like, just sounds like every pregnant woman's story. Like, well, I had food poisoning. Um, I'd made some chili. I thought it was bad chili. It was, like, a week later. And then I realized like, wait a minute. Um, and we were so excited and we went to our first checkup, which was our nine week checkup. And it was a miscarriage. And so I was nine weeks, but the fetus was like five weeks. And, oh, wow. so, you know, the doctors were like, well, maybe the dates are wrong and maybe, um, but yeah, that was not it. And, um, it was a very like bad miscarriage. Like I had really bad hemorrhaging and like had to call an ambulance and a whole very dramatic scene ensued from that. Just to get a, just a little bit deeper in that, I'm sorry that you went through that experience, but to learn from it a little bit, you went to the doctor for your nine-week checkup and you saw that the baby stopped thriving and yeah. then it looked like the baby stopped thriving a month earlier. Uh, no, no, the, the, no. It was the, you know, we didn't go for, you know, an early checkup. They were like, come in in nine weeks. And, you know, I think I called at six and they were like, we're busy. We'll see you at nine weeks. And so that first appointment, there's no heartbeat. And, you know, maybe your dates are off, you know, like when you think you conceived and I knew that they weren't. And so then they said, you know, let's just give it a week and maybe, but maybe you're wrong, you know? And, and then if you start to spot or bleed, you'll know that it is, and it was interesting because like I had all the symptoms because as a, a miscarriage, your body's still producing all the hormones. But as that week went on, like, you know, the nauseousness started to fade and sort of the heaviness I was feeling started to fade. And I was like, oh no, this is really happening. I really am going to have a miscarriage. And it, it was one of those, like that just started out like, oh, heavy bleeding. Okay, fine. And then just as I kept bleeding through the night and then like I kept getting up to go to the bathroom and, and then I fainted and my husband, you know, from just massive blood loss and my husband like had to call the ambulance and they had to do an emergency um, DNC in order to stop the bleeding. At the hospital? At the hospital yeah. Like it was like, they couldn't kind of figure out why. And I, I had another experience after that pregnancy of just trying to figure out 
and I can explain about my, you know, issues of infertility, but I just had a history of hemorrhaging and that like that they couldn't kind of figure out why, like I had tests done and I saw a hematologist and they just weren't quite sure. Wow. So a harder recovery than typical, I would imagine. Yeah. I I think it's interesting. You know, I've obviously listened to your podcast and, you know, I think women, we, we feel like, and I mean, I have a career I love and you don't want to be considered as weak. And I remember actually (laughs) an episode of television I had written was airing. And I remember hosting a party at my house, like four days later. (laughs) Oh, wow. And I was like, and I looking back, I'm like, that's so crazy. And I would never do that now. Cause I was just like grieving and still, I, I mean, some friends of mine came over who knew to help out. Cause I was like, I can't bend down or open the oven or, you know what I mean? Like do like heavy lift. Like I just wasn't feeling great, but I wanted to be like, I'm fine. I'm a champ. I can get through this. Like, it's not a big deal. And looking back, it was, and it was definitely, you know, it's traumatic and I should have kind of given it the weight that it deserved, but I wanted to be like, well, you know, and then there's that whole thing of like, well, it wasn't really a baby. And it was, you know, people always say, well, it was so early and it happens. And, but I do think you still have to acknowledge that it was, and you start making those plans and you start imagining what that child's going to be like and how your family's going to be. And and then it's just gone, you know, and you have to say like, okay, we're going to try again, you know? Yeah. I mean, everything you're saying is what I hear over and over again that, you know, it doesn't matter. Like once you get that positive and, and you want to have a baby, you get connected somehow to that pregnancy. And, you know, when it's lost, then it hurts. It's emotionally traumatic. And in your case, also pretty physically traumatic. So it's a recovery. Did your friends know that you had been pregnant and had a miscarriage? Like my closest friends and a couple of people from work, but, but most of them didn't because mm-hmm. I just, you know, it's obviously an industry where sometimes being a mother is not like the best, you know, if you're climbing the ladder, like, I mean, now I'm doing a podcast about my pregnancy. You know, I've just, at this point in my career, I've decided that like, I'm not hiding it. And if I'm, I'm not going to work for someone that, you know, isn't going to be okay with me having children, especially babies, because I've worked really hard to get where I'm at. And I'm also worked really hard to become a mom. So I think those things have to live together, you know, and like, and like exist together. Hopefully the time that we're living in also the industry is changing a little bit to be more inclusive and somewhat more accommodating to motherhood. I've definitely seen it, you know, people have said that and my, you know, friends of mine and I have a lot of mom friends who will ask what the culture of the job is because if, you know, if it's a a job where the boss expects, you know, 12 hour, 15 hour days, you're working past eight o'clock, you know, you won't take that job because you want to be home to put your kids to bed. You said at, at some point you, after miscarriage, got to the point where you're like, well, we'll have to try again. How did that go for you? It didn't go great. <laughs> it was, um, you know, we had, we were trying and, you know, my OB was like, well, you know, maybe we should kind of investigate and see, you know, if there's anything and just physically that might be preventing you from getting pregnant. And so we did, I did a hysteroscopy And unfortunately, and we don't really know what caused it, but I had major complications from that. I had the procedure, which is a very, you know, you go in, it's, they put you under, um, they knew I had some cysts and some fibroids. I didn't have endometriosis or anything like that, that they knew of, but they were like, we'll just go in and like, you know, clean everything out. And, And so I was fine after that procedure. And then a week later, something burst or something. And I had a major hemorrhaging episode after that. And that was probably seven or eight months after, um, it was fairly similar to like the symptoms of my miscarriage. 
and had to have another emergency DNC and lost a lot of blood. So it was very traumatic and it was very, um, it took me a lot longer to get back on my feet after that physically. Um, and I couldn't figure out what to do to like, cause I was going to all these doctors and they were like, you're perfectly fine. Like your blood work looks. And I finally went to my acupuncturist and he was like, you're blood deficient. And I had like three or four sessions with him and finally felt like a human again. And I think that was the moment where we were sort of like, okay, now we need to do something more because, you know, my doctor was like, you know, once I healed from that, you look fine. Let's we're not, I'm not quite sure. And maybe it is time to seek out further reproductive help. So that set us on our, on our next three year journey of trying. Oh, wow. Three years because you started with like baseline fertility options and worked your way up the ladder there. Yeah. And there's a part of me that, and I don't want to say regret because, you know, you just do what's, you know, because obviously IVF is expensive and and the hormones and the injections and I hate needles and, um, and, you know, having been pregnant once before you think, well, maybe we can make it this happen again. So we did like three or four IUIs. And then I had another, I think two hysteroscopies that year. And the, um, just to clarify for anyone who doesn't know, an IUI is intrauterine insemination. So were you doing them with medications or just natural cycles? I think we did one natural and two medicated and never got a positive. Oral um, medications or injections? You know, I think it was just, I think it was just, and I should know this, but I think it was just Clomid that we were Clomid. doing. And no other, you know, because my levels were good and they weren't, you know, they weren't worried about my AMH or any of that. Like I had, you know, that was all good. They, I mean, and hit my husband's numbers, like sperm count and all of that was good. So, you know, it was kind of like, we're not really sure, but it kept coming back to like, you have some more fibroids and cysts. We want to take another look. So by the end of that year, it was, I think it was almost a year of like us doing just that like getting and trying to see, cause then, you know, you have to heal and then, you know, yeah. So then we just, my, I remember it was like almost the holidays, another, you know, Christmas. And my doctor was like, you know, I really think it's time to move into IVF and time to do that. And we were like, okay, let's do it. And, um, that would be another almost two years of that. Well, you did multiple cycles of IVF. So, you know, we didn't, I mean, if you consider a cycle of IVF, like multiple retrievals and multiple transfers, we did one retrieval and two transfers, but our retrieval, we were able to get four embryos and then it just became this thing of my inhospitable uterus. There was always like just something, you know, there's fibroids, it's not clear, let's go in and look again. So total from the start to the finish, I did six hysteroscopies. And there is some argument that like doing that many invasive procedures can cause issues. But at the end of the day, the doctors were like, you won't get pregnant if there's all of these things, you know, blocking your tube, blocking everything. So I had to make that decision of like, okay, let's try it again. Wow. So it's not that you did cycle after cycle, you stimulated, you got four embryos, but you needed to wait for an opportunity to try putting one in and seeing how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. So we finally, like in the fall of 2019, we were able to finally get to the place where we're like, yes, we're transfer. I know it was, I'm sorry. It was the summer of 2019. We're finally transferring. My husband goes away for work. So he wasn't even in town. I was like, all right, we'll do this. I had a terrible experience. Like I just had like, they lost my, my dog walker, like nearly got my dog killed like an hour before I left for my transfer. Like, 
was like, your dog's running down uh, La Cienega. Um, oh my God. And I was like, I called my friend who was taking me to my transfer and was like, well, I'm canceling this. And she's like, no, 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 they'll find him. Luckily they did, but it was just a very stressful work time. I had scripts due, I had a book launching and I don't know if it was the stress of whatever, like it was a, I mean, it was a very high stress situation and I do believe stress manifests in the body. And so we transferred one embryo. I got a positive pregnancy test. It was positive. And then when I went in for my five week ultrasound, the first ultrasound there, it was a blighted ovum. So there was no, you know, there was no baby, like just the sack. Um, empty sack. That was, you know, I mean, I think for anyone who does IVF and I, I don't know, I don't feel like I was so naive that I thought like, oh my God, it's definitely going to work. But I think it's like, you have to like, it's kind of like pursuing a career in Hollywood, right? Like you have to believe <laughs> it can happen. Right. Um, otherwise, like why do it, you know, like, and so, but then the, you know, it's just that crushing, just that moment of like, I have to do this again. I have to do these drugs and the waiting and the like appointments and all of that. And this was like Christmas of 2019. And I just remember going to like church on Christmas Eve and we're in the back, you know, for Christmas Eve mass and we're in the back of the church sitting and there's this like fountain. And I didn't know this, but children love fountains and they're like drawn like moths. And I'm just watching all these kids, like, you know, babies and I just sat there and cried like during this whole church service. Cause I was like, this might, you know, we're in year four of our, you know, or yeah, like three and a half of our trying to have a child and we're it's, or I guess it was four years and we're just not there, you know, and it's maybe such a painful journey. And, you know, when it comes to acting, I have a patient who's now a very successful actor, but she told me that, you know, auditioning the way she put it was like going door to door uh, selling vacuums and every single door that you knock on, you have to put on your A game and believe that this is going to be the sale. But you know that 99 out of 100 doors are going to close in your face with no sale. And you okay. still have to dust yourself off, pick yourself up, you know, build up your confidence and go knock on the next door. And so it sounds like you're making a similar analogy. But what happens is because you have to have that positive belief that this is the one it creates a big fall afterwards when it isn't the one this is like really a, a very intense fertility journey more than i i knew that you had but the good news is i know that it has a happy ending <laughs> and i want to find out more about that but we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Holly Overton. Okay, so at this point, you've retrieved four embryos. You've finally found a window of opportunity to put one in, and it comes out as a blighted ovum, no pregnancy. Where do you go from there? Well, I go back in for, you know, the post, like, okay, when can we start again? And it was, I was traveling for work right before the holidays, and they're like, guess what? your uterus doesn't look good. <laughs> oh no. So, and you know, it was basically like, and we was traveling for the holidays. So it was basically like October. It was like, okay, well we'll do this another surgery in January. And it's very hard. Every month feels like, a, you know, just endless. And so I, you know, gather myself up to do another surgery in January and goes really well. And then I go and then COVID hits and the fertility, obviously community is, you know, they, the fertility doctors decide 
let's put a pause on this until we can figure stuff out. So my March, April cycle was canceled and my husband is preparing to leave again for, you know, two months to go work in New York. And I had said, I'm not going to do this again without you here. Like it's too hard. And then of course I was like, okay, but either that, or I wait till you come back in September and we lose all this time. So I was like, we'll just go forward. And I go back in and they're going to proceed. And they say, there's fluid on your uterus. Oh no. (laughs) In your lining. And I was like, okay. Um, So we have to pause another month. And this was something new. This, even my doctor. And that was, I was probably the hardest moment of the whole thing because my doctor was like, you know, you may have to consider other options like surrogacy or, you know, because we could implant it, but it'd be like implanting into a swimming pool. Right. But let's see what happens next month. And I finally go back in the next month. My husband's gone and I'm doing my injections and doing, you know, kind of we're emailing and FaceTiming and calling and, and I get a positive. They, the transfer goes off beautifully. My twin sister was with me and she always jokes. I was there for conception. I'm like, maybe (laughs) all the babies that, Um, and, uh, so I get this positive pregnancy test and, you know, um, anyone who's had the positive pregnancy test though, and who's been through infertility and faced pregnancy loss knows that you can't start celebrating yet because, you know, you like, I've had two ultrasounds where I've never heard a heartbeat. So that first ultrasound was such a big, you know, holding your breath, so nervous and went and just heard a beautiful heartbeat and, you know, five weeks, it's still really early. And at that appointment, my doctor says, did I see a twin? No, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I think I don't, it's no, never mind. Um, it kind of brushes it off. Um, and then I go back for my sixth week appointment and the doctor says, you know, your uterus is tilted. So there could be like, we kind of, I think they knew, but they weren't going to be like, it's definitely twins without like a hundred percent, you know? And then I go back the following week and they say, congratulations, you're having identical twins. <laughs> wow. In the two times that they mentioned the possibility, was that something exciting to you or something scary to you? You know, I don't even think I, it was like so casual the way they mentioned it. And I was like, I just wanted a baby so badly that I was like, and I mentioned it to my husband and because we both were like, we would have, we both have siblings, you know, I have my sister, he's got a sister. We were like, we'd really love to have more than one, but as long as it's taken us, that's not going to happen. So I, we didn't really even entertain the idea. We were like, oh, wouldn't that be fun? But that's not our luck that we would, you know what I mean? That doesn't happen. And so we just sort of said like, oh, that's funny. And then like, didn't even think about it again. So when we found out it was identical twins, I was really excited. I mean, we knew it was girls because we knew what the embryos was. And we were just both like, this is great. This is just so exciting. So just to be clear, you put in one embryo. You put in one embryo. And it split. It split creating identical twins. Okay. How does it go from there? I mean, now are you just excited and not nervous? No. I mean, I think like, I remember, no, cause I'd had a little bit of spotting even before one of my exams and, you know, you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. You've been through so much. And so every ultrasound, you know, you go every week when you've done IVF and, you know, and so I was just so nervous and I, I go back for that next ultrasound the following week and it was week eight And one of the doctors in the practice, she's been with me for three years. She's given me lots of bad news. And she's like, okay, so the heartbeats are great. (laughs) So she led with the good news or like, I guess the least surprising news. And then she said, but there are three of them. Oh my goodness. And I just, I was like, I think I said, holy 
about a hundred. <laughs> and then I would like got my camera out because my my husband wasn't there to film it and like film the ultrasound. And she's like, okay, so baby A is here and baby B is here and baby C is there. And I mean, you can't even prepare yourself for that kind of news that you're having identical triplets. Like there's just nothing that will ever prepare you for that. That's insane. And it's super rare, right? Like something like. It's very, I mean, they don't really keep track. So it's anywhere from like one in a million to one in 200 million is kind of like what the internet says. And my fertility doctor and my maternal fetal medicine doctor, this high risk specialist I saw throughout my pregnancy are both men in their sixties, maybe older. And they've been doing it. You know, they've been doing this. Neither one of them had ever had identical triplets. They'd had a lot of triplets, you know, or enough but they never had identical. So but that's true enough. Like, you know, you know, I do so much pregnancy work and I've, you know, I see a set of triplets once a year, once every 18 months, you're the first set of identical triplets I've ever seen. How did the pregnancy go for you? I have to say, I, I had this really bad doctor's appointment with a maternal fetal medicine doctor who was just like, this is never going to happen. And like, you're probably not going to keep this pregnancy and like, good luck. And if you last 12 weeks, I'll see you. He did not become my doctor. I mean, that obviously that an appointment like that will scare you, but I knew the risks, right? It's a very high risk pregnancy. I'm a little older. So like multiples in general and then twins and then triplets is added. So I was really scared, but honestly, like, I mean, I had every symptom there is that I read about, like I got them all like the back aches, the sciatica, I had terrible migraines for a month, like just debilitating migraines and nauseousness. But overall, like, I mean, I was still able to do stuff. I was never on full bed rest. I was able to walk around my house at least and cook, you know, and like, I shouldn't say cook. My sister will will hear this and be like, what are you talking about? Like (laughs) she was like my caretaker for my first, because my husband was gone. So for my first trimester, she cooked every meal for me and like, you know, waited on me and was just like the champion of the hour because it was tough. And then of course you were my savior with my um, back pain and, it was, you know, it was a lot. And we also moved in the middle of like my, like like I was like seven months pregnant when we moved, which is not, I don't advise, but it was a pretty, like, I think normal pregnancy for whatever normal can be when you're having triplets, there was nothing super extreme. As I got later into the pregnancy, the babies had restricted growth. So they were on the smaller side and I, I didn't gain a lot of weight. I only gained 40 pounds. So yeah. And, and I was, I kept waiting to like get really big and like people would see me and be like, you have three babies in there. And like, I guess like, <laughs> but you know, it, I, I like, I ate what I could. I mean, I was like, I should be eating more, but i never was really hungry. I wasn't one of those people that wanted to eat everything. I had a lot of food aversions. I'm that person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I like wished I could have, there was a book I read and it was all about like how you need to eat a certain amount of like 4,000 calories if you're having multiples. And that was never going to happen for me. You know, when it comes to delivering triplets, it's generally recommended that you have a cesarean birth. Was that the case for you? Absolutely. And with my history of hemorrhaging, like even if it wasn't recommended, I would have said I want a cesarean because I wanted a controlled situation. Um, But it's almost, you know, I know some triplet moms are like, but I want to do it. I want a vaginal birth. I want to have the natural. Um, I was like, give me the drugs and let me, you know, and I knew that the babies were small and we ended up having a bit of an emergency C-section. Well, at the 27 weeks, one of the babies was looking really small. So then your every week checkups become twice a week checkups to make sure. And, you know, I was sort of warned by my doctor at the 27 week, like, 
if there's not a lot of growth next week and 28 weeks is a big week for, you know, a baby's growth and development, we may have to like talk delivering. But my little girl gave, had a growth spurt and we got through 28 and got to 29. And then week 30, we went in and it was New Year's Day for our second appointment. And we ended up getting trapped in the elevator at the doctor's office. Like for some reason, the elevator broke and we got locked in it, my husband and I. And it took like 45 minutes for them to like send the firemen to help get us, uh, bust us out. In the hospital. Um, it was in the doctor's office at the oh, hospital. So gotcha. it was a separate in the medical room. tower. Yeah, exactly. And um, I was like, this is so crazy because I like I had to pee. I didn't bring any water, like all the things you're not supposed to do when you're like, you know, trapped in an elevator. And was so it just we you went, and your husband in the elevator? Yeah. Just and, and three babies, just the and five of babies. you. <laughs> you know, super comfortable. He was like, you should sit. I was like, I can't sit on this floor. Like, how am I going to get on the floor? And then after 20 minutes, I was like, you're going to have to help me get on this floor because I can't stand up any longer. So we went upstairs to see the doctor who was like, I'm so sorry about that. And he was like, let's take your blood pressure. Cause normally the appointments were really about the babies, but, um, and it was a little elevated and he took it four times and he was like, just go to labor and delivery. And you know, that morning, like it was a very early morning appointment. I thought I'll take a shower and wash my hair later. This is going to be an early appointment. I never went home. Like I got there and they took my blood pressure and it was fine, but they did my labs and my kidney and liver functions were plummeting and I had preeclampsia. And so it was like, okay, we're going to monitor you for the next eight hours. And after eight hours, they were like, we're going to deliver these babies tomorrow. So they were delivered on the 2nd of January. Wow, um, so, but that's at 30 weeks. At 30 weeks, four days. Yeah. Wow. And so, you were aiming for 34 weeks. We were aiming for 34. That was the goal, but you know, they a few wanted weeks early. It's early. Yeah. What were their weights? They were each two pounds. Wow. Um, so they were tiny little nuggets, but it's amazing. People would always say preemies are strong and babies are like surprised to you. And you know, those weeks in the NICU are just a blur. So two of our daughters, Lucy, Annie, and Daisy were our babies and Lucy and Daisy were perfectly healthy, you know, just like small. Unfortunately, Annie had what is called a VSD, which is a ventricular septal defect. It's a heart defect, like basically a hole in the lower chamber of her heart. So it became very clear. I mean, it's one of those things they'll tell you about. And if you tell people, they'll be like, oh yeah, that, that'll close up on its own. And for a lot of babies and children, it does. Or they could have it repaired when they're older. But our doctors kept saying she has a very large VSD. Just it was always mm. very large. I was like, is that the medical term? Very large. But she actually had it repaired and she came home last week. She had oh, been wow. for four months. They're four months old. But she finally came home and she's doing great. And the sisters were reunited. And so it's just been, you know, it's definitely not like the we get to bring our baby home after like four days in the hospital, you know, Lucy and Daisy spent six, seven weeks in the hospital and Annie spent 116 days, but they're beautiful, healthy. My pediatrician said they're, you know, even for premature babies, she's like, they're surpassing all their milestones. So it's very exciting to see that. And they're like 11 pounds, you know, like they're huge to me. People will see them and be like, they're so tiny. And I'm like, really? They seem like monsters <laughs> to me. Like when you go from two pounds to 11 pounds, you know, it's gigantic. Yeah. Did you have trouble telling them apart at first? At first, husband and I are like, which baby do you have? Like, 
what baby's got? <laughs> Daisy has a birthmark on her leg. So if she's just like in her like diaper or her onesie, that's not like long pants. We can tell because she's got this like birthmark. Annie's a little smaller and she has a scar from her open heart surgery. So we can tell her apart. But when they're all dressed and like, it, I mean, even Annie, sometimes I'm like, wait, which one are you? And then I have to like look a little closer. So I feel like it's going to just be a lifetime of me being like, wait, I think like after, especially babies all look alike kind of anyway. So I'm excited to, when they get a little older that we start to like notice, you know, and tell them apart. But it's crazy because I thought like as a twin, I just know how to tell them apart. And that has not happened yet. Yeah, I mean, now you know how I feel I, because I'm face blind. I can never tell anybody apart. So. I, know. <laughs> I know. I think that would be so weird because I kind of look at them and I'm like, Who, which one are you? Who are you? <laughs> That's my whole <laughs> life. I can look for birthmarks and scars on people. That's amazing. Um, I do have this question. Just curiosity. Do they sleep together? They each have their own crib. So um, the American Association of Pediatrics suggests safe sleep is not to sleep together. Otherwise, we would have gotten a big old crib. I know like if they're swaddled, it would be fine. But I kind of liked the idea of like they don't sleep in our room either. We've always put them in their cribs. I think with three, like, you know, I was like, I don't want to have to like start teaching them to sleep someplace new after they're born. And Lucy and Daisy are already really good sleepers. Like they can go six, seven hour stretches at night. So we just got to get Annie there. She's a little behind on that. She's still eating every two to three hours, but it kind of is important. And we sort of followed the guidelines of what they say for multiples. Do they interact with each other? You know, it's so funny because people are like, oh my gosh, like they must have missed Annie so much. And I was like, you know what? I don't think they know what's <laughs> going on right now. They're pretty much just like feed me, change me. They're starting to smile at us and like notice us. And that's really fun. So like I will be really dorky and I'll wake up early and put them in a cute outfit and take a bunch of pictures in the morning when they're like in a good mood. And I'll put them on the, you know, boppies and they're like, what is this chick doing? Like get her away from me. Oh. <laughs> uh. Well, Holly, you're an amazing inspiration to me. You had a, a really tough journey. And, you know, I could almost, my wife and I struggled with fertility. And I could, you know, I could almost put myself in that space where you're on that awful roller coaster of thinking this is the one and then finding out it isn't and then having to pick up the pieces and go again. And, uh, you know, I'm not even the one who experiences it as intensely. My wife really, you know, she, was the one physically going through it and going through all sorts of feelings of failure and what's wrong with me. And thank God we have four healthy children now and uh, you have three healthy children now. I don't think I have it in me to try for one more. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, I just remember when we finally had our son, our firstborn and uh, he would cry at nighttime and we'd be so excited to hear him crying and running out there. Yeah. And our friends would be like, oh, I hate when my baby cries at nighttime. I'm like, I love it. <laughs> you know, it's a different perspective. It's a different paradigm. So at this point, you feel like your family is complete? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. We, there's a wonderful security guard who's so nice at the hospital. And, you know, we were the triplet mom and dad, you know, and he would be like, you got to give your husband a son. And I was like, he is perfectly content with his three beautiful daughters. <laughs> um, and like, you know, and I was like, what if I had quadruplets next time? Identical three triplet boys. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> three is a perfect number. I only thought I'd have one and you know, now we have three. So I'm very happy. And I do think you saying that is like a perfect way of like people like, Oh my God, it must be so hard. Or how would you do it? Or I would hate that. 
And I think the gratitude we just feel because we really were starting to feel like having a family wasn't going to be possible for us. So like every time we see these babies, like it's a lot of babies, but we're just so happy. And like just every moment we'll just look at each other and be like, can you believe this? Like, this is so crazy. So we just take every moment in even the hard ones when they're all three losing their minds, you know? Yeah, it's definitely a handful. You know, there's a quote about multiples that I heard a long time ago, and it was this. There's two things life can never fully prepare you for, twins. (laughs) But now I guess there's three things life can never fully prepare you for. The crazy first 18 months with multiples, and then they say it gets easier. Look, I'm so grateful. Again, you're such a busy person at this point with all the things going on in your life, and not the least of which is these three kids. I'm so grateful that you took a little time to share your story with me and with our audience. And two final questions for you. Do you have any projects coming up soon? I'm currently working on my fourth book, which is being written as we speak, and um, developing some television projects that, you know, hopefully will have their own life at some point. Um, But anybody can find me. um, I'm on Twitter at Holly Overton, and I also have a website, hollyoverton.com. And I'm on Instagram at Holly Overton. And I've actually talked a lot about, or not a lot, but I've been talking about my fertility journey sometimes on my social media. So I think it's a very lonely, sometimes silent kind of thing you go through. And I think the more we kind of talk about it, like podcasts like this, the more people don't feel as alone in some of their struggles. Absolutely. And that's exactly the feedback that we get. All right. I'm going to go find you in the Twitter sphere, the Insta sphere, and keep tabs on uh, your projects coming up. And I'm sure see some of these adorable pictures as the kids get older. Thanks for joining us. And at home, thanks for listening to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. If you like our program, share us with your friends. Leave us some feedback. Actually, look at all the feedback. Or send us a message to info at informedpregnancy.com. I got